The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Today's episode, we will give our end-of-the-year review for the West Virginia Mountaineer football team and discuss the exciting new offensive coordinator hire. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Quirk, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, before we get started, I just want to encourage everybody to follow our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Look for The Voice of Motown Podcast, a completely separate account from The Voice of Motown that Brad runs. Follow both of us, Brad's account and ours. Also, follow and rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you enjoy listening to us. And lastly, look for Brandon's articles on The Voice of Motown's website and social media accounts. So let's get into it. We are going to start with the exciting news of Graham Harrell. West Virginia announced the hiring of our new offensive coordinator, Graham Harrell, today. I can't remember the last time I was this excited about a hire that wasn't the head coaching position. Graham was the offensive coordinator for North Texas from 2016 to 2018. And most recently, he was the offensive coordinator for the USC Trojans from 2019 to 2021. He has a great track record in those six seasons. He he took over the North Texas job. They were ranked in the bottom 25 in many offensive categories. And by his second and third season there, he had the North Texas offense ranked near the top 25 in total yards, points, everything where you want to see it. And then he goes to the USC and has their offense ranked in the top 25 nationally in all three seasons. So this is exactly the hire that Neil Brown and his offensive unit needed. What are your thoughts on the hire? Yeah, so uh, I, 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 prepare, I prepared a soundbite for this that I think describes the situation pretty well. I'm going to play for you all right now. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's perfect. We... Uh, needed an offense a great offensive mind and we went out and got him i mean i think this completely changes um you know the the feelings for a lot of mountaineer fans because the biggest issue for the team the past couple years has been having a good or great defense and having an offense that just at times couldn't get a first down so you know we're trotting out that defense over and over and over again burning out our top strength and not moving the ball, not giving them any support. And now we have a guy out there who has proven he can move the ball um, at multiple stops. I mean, that North Texas stat that you were talking about where they actually ranked 117th out of 128 teams his first year there. The next year, he got them up to 24th and the year after 20th. I mean, that's just incredible. And that's at North Texas. It's not like it's at SC where he excelled as well. Um, and they're loaded with talent where he can go out there and get any receiver in California that he wants or quarterback to, you know, improve the offense. And it's North Texas. You know, you're going out there and you're getting the the, the, the seconds from Texas and Oklahoma and all those other schools that pick Texas clean, and you're still able to figure out a way to produce on offense. And I think that's huge for West Virginia. 
Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. This is going to bring in fresh ideas, which is what the fan base has been begging for for months now. The offense was stale. It, it just wasn't working these past three years. And um, Brown needed to bring in an outsider to liven up the offensive side of the ball. And credit to him for realizing that a change needed to be made. And then, of course, then making the splash higher. Because, um, you know, expect to see the ball get out a lot quicker now, which was a big problem for WVU for most of the season. This style could help our offensive line out as well. We've even been talking about this because they won't be asked to hold their blocks for extended periods of time. And now I finally feel like this offense has direction in a game plan. I never really knew what our offensive identity was for these past three seasons. Like, I, I feel like now I do. In fact, here are the quotes from Graham Harrell when he was initially hired at USC. Graham said, the philosophy is to keep it easy and let the guys go play and put your guys in position to be successful. It's an execution-based offense. You're not going to sit there and try to out-scheme people. It's an identity. It gives you an identity and says, this is who we are, and we are going to be good at what we do. So that's the kind of approach we take. Dude, That that's like music to my ear. It. Because that's what you and me have been saying for months now on this podcast, is that just go out there with plays that your players are comfortable with, that you know you can execute, and just out-execute the other team. Keep it simple. And for whatever reason, it just always seemed like Neil Brown and his coaching staff were trying to out-counter their opponents to the point that it hinders the offense. And those quotes from Graham Harold, I mean, that that is what every WVU fan wants to hear today. Oh, for sure. And I, I think um, Neil Brown's interview today on Sportsline was pretty telling, too, where he talked about and acknowledged that, like we've been saying all season and, you know, fans have been saying as well, is that, you know, they were trying to do too much. We talked about how, you know, Neil Brown's offense seemed to be a combination between RPO, air raid, vertical offense that just didn't make sense. There was nothing that was kind of building off of each other to stretch the defense or get the defensive out of, out of position. Um, players oftentimes weren't necessarily executing. And, you know, like in the Minnesota game where, you know, you had Deggy getting pressured all the time. And a lot of those times, some of the times was because of Deggy, but other times it was because we were drawing up plays that just really didn't flow within the offense. We were running nice short passes. We were moving the ball. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, we were threat running, you know, four verticals or, you know, two posts down the middle. And we just didn't have that time to throw. And the defense wasn't really, you know, playing off of anything that would open up those routes. Um, something that Graham Harrell's going to bring in is something that mes meshes and cohesively fits within a game plan. So, you know, he's going to run some plays that then play off the other and, you know, just figure out ways to attack the defense and naturally, organically counters what the defense is going to do to react to that. I mean, that's what good play callers and good play designers do. You know, it's not trying to design a counter. It's building that counter into that same play call so that when you play it, you just look at the second option or the third option. Um, and it works because in college, you know, the, these are still student athletes. There's only so much time these players can sit and study a playbook and understand everything that you want them to understand how you know what they need to do in certain situations if you're trying to teach option routes and things like that uh, football is a very complex game especially for you know wide receivers and offensive linemen and quarterbacks so you know you have to do the most with the time that you have and a simplistic offense that has an identity is definitely the best way to go and i'm super excited about this because you know 
Neil Brown acknowledged that there was an issue and he went out there and brought in, you know, in my opinion, probably one of the best available guys that you could possibly bring in. I mean, um, I think there was even rumors last year where Harold was even considered or two years ago, actually Harold was considered being named offensive coordinator for the Eagles under Doug Peterson. Um, Peterson didn't obviously go that direction, but um, he ended up getting fired probably because he didn't have another offensive coordinator in there, but it just kind of goes to show you how highly thought of Graham Harrell is. Yeah, for sure. A huge hire. And like you were saying, credit to Neil Brown for actually admitting it, that there's a problem and it needs fixed because that is an ego. um, You know, it it, kind of knocks you down a peg or two, but you need to admit that if you're the one in charge and he did. So credit to him for that. Um, And talking about this from a recruiting angle, you see guys that he's coached recently um, like Michael Pittman and um, St. Brown having success in the NFL. And of course, that can be a big selling point to these young recruits. I mean, uh, you, me, and Brad were talking about this yesterday. Obviously, if you find a kid who's a super talented athlete, whether they fit your system or not, you might want to recruit them and, uh, you know, you'll find a way to use them. But in general, coaches are looking for certain skills when they recruit. Um, if we remember back to the Rich Rod days, he is looking for speedy, small, fast guys to make splash plays in his offense. If we go back to the Dana days, he's looking for pocket passers, tall, physical wide receivers, a running back who can catch. And this isn't a call to bring back Rich or Dana. That's not what this is. My point is, if you are a Mountaineer coach and you're recruiting, what are you even looking for in a player? Because our offense had no identity or direction prior to this. Now, I feel like we do. We know how Graham likes to call an offense. We know what style, what players fit his style. So now coaches know what to look for when they're out there recruiting. Like, I, I can't be more pumped about this hire. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, that's a great point, too, because, you know, while we have been recruiting pretty well, you know, part of the transfer problem, too, could be just them not knowing where they fit in, they them not being able to see the long view. You know, maybe the coaches say, okay, you know, in two or three years, this is what we think this guy can be. But in the day and age of the transfer portal, players don't wait two or three years to figure out where they want to be. They want to get in that rotation now. Um, you know, maybe they'll wait a year to see playing time, but they kind of want to understand that, you know, this is my roadmap to playing time. This is what I'm going to be doing. This is what I need to do to succeed. And whenever you're constantly kind of, amending your playbook to fit the next opponent that you're playing, which it seemed like WVU did quite a bit under Neil Brown, um, Neil Brown's play calling. And you're not playing young guys just because things get so complex, um, which I think is a lot of the reason why we saw some of these really talented young guys not see the field until week eight, week nine, you know, think of guys like St. McLeod and Caden Prather. Um, You know, it's tough. And you know, it's hard to explain that as a coach, like, you know, just putting the work, just putting the work. Well, you know, they look across the, you know, the TV screen and they see maybe a buddy or some people that they went to school with or someone they played against on the field as a freshman or as a sophomore. And they're like, you know, I I, I outplayed this kid in high school. Well, how come they're seeing the field and I'm not? That stuff matters. Um, I know a lot of people like to blame the fans for, you know, complaining and being loud and vocal about things. But the players, like we've said before, that they know football, you know, they know football better than me or Tyler do. So um, they kind of see the issues ahead of time. And, you know, even though they are young and, you know, they might make some brash decisions, um, 
you know, it's an option for them and you can't really criticize them for doing it. Um, you know, this is a good way to get rid of that issue by having that identity, to, by having that, you know, described, you know, prescribed roadmap for someone to follow to know what they have to do to get on the field and having more simplistic playbook, having something that's going to be proven to succeed. It gets a lot more people to buy in. I mean, you know, whenever you're Neil Brown or, or Gerard Parker and you're saying, okay, well, you know, this is what we want the offense to be. And you're trying to convince players who are leaving that, you know, it's going to be better because, you know, we need, we're going to fix these two or three issues. It's hard to sell them on that because they've been playing in that system for two or three years and it hasn't worked. You know, there's been really no semblance of success. Maybe you have a game or two here and there, but that's the exception rather than the rule. And, um, you know, it's just hard to sell that. Now they have something to look forward to. The players do. I mean, you've seen Bryce Ford Wheaton on uh, social media getting excited about it. And I'm sure that a ton of other players are getting excited about it internally as well. So um, it's just, I think it's a home run hire. There's really no negatives to bringing in Graham Harrell. Um, and I'm really, really excited to see the product that he pulls out in uh, September. Yeah, 100%. And uh, like you were saying, I mean, this is going to get even players to buy back in when a lot are looking to leave. Now, you know, some of them are probably changing their tune and they're excited to see what fresh new ideas are going to be coming in next year. Um, so, yeah, that's all I got on the hire. You got anything else? Yeah, I, I just wanted to talk about one more thing and just kind of to reiterate what Brown had to say. Um you know, and it, you know, we talked about how he's taking accountability, but also kind of what he sees, you know, what this is going to allow him to do. So Brown was quoted as saying, you know, I've been serving at, in a dual role as offensive coordinator and head coach, and we need to bring in another voice for offense. Having Graham as the offensive coordinator and working with Gerard as the number two lead in the offensive room, as he has done, will make us better, more efficient offense and move us in the direction we need to head. In turn, that will allow me to be a more effective CEO of the Mountaineer football program. So, you know, I think that says a lot that it's a maturing thing. You know, it takes a lot to kind of um, take a step back from something that you've done for so long. And he alluded to that in the Sportsline interview where he said, you know, I've, you know, called some darn good offenses myself over the years. You know, I've played call for a lot of years, but it's hard. You know, it's hard to, you know, build out that game plan while also kind of manage the team as the whole. And it shows growth as a person because there were times during the season where we openly questioned, you know, how much time Neil Brown had to spend to address some of these issues. And again, with the transfers, some of that may have been due to not having someone up top who's overseeing all the things that are going on and able to go in and address them because they're too preoccupied with something else and not trusting someone else to do that job. So, um, and some of that too, maybe because of the assistance, you know, maybe he didn't trust Gerard Parker or Sean Reagan or the others on the staff to take on that responsibility. But having someone with the track record that Graham Harrell has, I mean, I'm sure that's something that Neil Brown can hand off and not have to lose sleep over it. Because when you have someone with the track record that Harrell has, whether it be from his playing days, um, Neil Brown even alluded to his time backing up Aaron Rodgers for three years in the NFL to what he's done in North Texas and SC. I mean, you can, just do your job and not have to worry if that guy designing the play calls for Saturday is going to do the right thing. Cause I have a feeling that everyone is going to feel pretty good about the plays he's calling. Yeah. 100%. I mean, he was a backup, but he was on a super bowl winning team. So, I mean, he knows what it takes to win. 
and he's been around a good group of people his whole career. Um, but yeah, in that same interview, Brown was talking about how college football has changed and now being a head coach requires you to wear a lot of different hats. And he's absolutely right. I mean, like you're the head coach. You need to make sure everything is going well and you can't just be focused on offense. So I think this will be good, not only for everything we've talked about, but also maybe he can get a tighter relationship with the entire team, not just the offensive players, but now he'll have more time to be dipping into what the defense is doing here and there. Um, but yeah, definitely growth in a young head coach, I think. And like we said, it takes, you know, coaches have egos and rightfully so. That's what makes them so good. So it's good that he was able to take a step back and really admit that this change needed to happen. Absolutely. All right. So um, let's get to the end of the year review for the West Virginia football team. So, um, this is just my opinion. Some Mountaineer fans might say that this season went exactly how they predicted back in August. But um, I think most WVU fans will say this team and coaching staff underachieved this year. Personally, I thought roughly eight wins was a fair expectation coming into the season. Um, I would have even been okay with seven wins. Um and even with hindsight and the ability to look back on our opponents at the end of the year, I still stand by that. You know, this was a very seven to eight winnable season. There were certain times that um, teams West Virginia lost to that were, you know, very winnable. Maryland, Texas Tech comes to mind. So I consider the 2021 football season a little disappointing. How about you? Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, I think eight was more than reasonable, especially like you said, with Maryland and Texas tech, you win those two games, you know, obviously we upset Iowa state. So even if you lose that game, you're at seven, uh, but losing those two games that you're supposed to win is bad. And then, you know, I think this was also a season with the, the talent that we brought back from last year, a defense where we were one of the top defenses in the country last year, we did lose two of our key players, but still, you know, same defensive coordinator, um, a lot of returning players, especially on the defensive line. Um, you know, same quarterback who didn't turn the ball over much last year. A thousand-yard rusher who did it in 10 games. Um, just a lot to look forward to. And, you know, the one thing we talked about at the beginning of the season uh, before we started doing the podcast was, you know, if these receivers can start catching the ball, man, that's going to fix all the problems. And the receivers started catching the balls, and then everything else went wrong offensively. The offensive line regressed terribly. Um, the quarterback play, you know, regressed where we started turning the ball over more. Um, so it was really concerning. And, you know, if you look at that second half of the schedule, you know, you look at teams like um, Oklahoma State, Kansas State, teams, games that were losses and, you know, pretty bad losses, you know, two or three score games. Those are, you know, I think those are games that going into them, I thought they would be a lot closer because even though Oklahoma State, you know, beat on some really good teams this year, especially Notre Dame. Um, you know, they, they weren't really something that on paper, West Virginia really had a bad matchup against. I mean, if you told me going into the Oklahoma State game, we would lose 24 to three, I'd be like, I don't know about that. But just because of how bad the offense was and how bad we got bullied that game, you know, we weren't anywhere near close to being into that game at any point in the season or not any point in the game. And same with, you know, Kansas State, where they just ran the ball over us all game. And those are games that I thought should have been a lot closer. You know, I thought, you know, one score game for both of those. So it's really disappointing because, like you said, eight wins was more than reasonable. 
And there's an outside shot where we could have got to nine. And I think that would have been a great step forward for the program. I think people would have, you know, not questioned as much. I think we would have a lot less transfers, but kind of it all just all the worst case scenario things happened. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And um, yeah, couldn't agree more. I don't really have a whole lot to say about the overall season. Yeah. And then, so, you know, uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, kind of how we um, did during the season, kind of the good, bad, and ugly here. So, you know, on offense, the, it, basically all of it was just ugly looking back at it. You know, we were ninth in the Big 12 in scoring offense. We were last in rushing offense at 123.2 yards per game. Um, something that I think if you'd have told me last year, um, we would have finished last in the Big 12 in rushing yards per game. I'd have been like, no way. You know, we have Letty. We ran well last year. Like, it seemed like we fixed the problem. And then this year, it just went to crap. And then if you look at the passing side of things, we were first in passing attempts, fourth in passing yards per game, but eighth in passing efficiency, um, last in sacks against. So I, I think, you know, when we look at the bad and the ugly, the offense is, you know, suspects one, two, and three. Uh, what did you think of the offense on the season? Yeah, they they dramatically underachieved, and just what the stats you were given backs up everything we've been saying for weeks. I mean, they expected Jared Dagey to be somebody he's not. We led the Big 12 in passing attempts. I mean, we shouldn't even be anywhere near the top. We should no. be, like, in the bottom half of that category. Um, Jared Dagey, I know a lot of quarterbacks get offended by this term but he's a game manager if you have him throw the ball 20 to 25 times he's gonna play pretty well for you but if you put it in his hands you know 35 40 times a game you know expect bad things to happen you're gonna have turnovers like no wonder his turnovers went up this year you, you can't put that all on him and um you know you got letty brown who was one of the best running backs in the big 12 last year and you could argue that um, he he even got too many touches. I'm not sure why they didn't go run heavy in some of these games and use his backups more, especially once Tony started to emerge about halfway through the year. And you could tell that, you know, he could have seven, eight, ten carries a game and, and give you pretty good production. But why wouldn't you lean into the strength of your team? The whole strength of WVU's team these past couple of years is their defense. They're not going to allow a lot of points. They're going to force some three and outs. And so why wouldn't you kind of modify your game plan, even if it's at halftime or midway through the game, into a run-heavy approach? Especially some of these games where we had leads. Like Virginia Tech, you're up 27-7. to seven with like a minute left in the third quarter. And that that game became an absolute nail biter. And it's like, you know, why aren't you why aren't you trying to chew up some clock and let Letty get you a couple first downs, flip the field? Instead it just seemed like we would go three and out, punt, VTEX got the ball again. And that's just one example. I mean, a lot of the games were like that. Against Maryland, we lost the turnover battle for nothing. And that game was really a one possession game all the way up until the very end. And again, we just, we didn't run the ball at all in the second half. Like I just didn't understand some of the decisions from the coaching staff, but um, I think it was five out of 13 games. WVU's offense had 20 or less points. If you get rid of, rid of the um, LIU game, they only averaged 20 points a game this season. Ooh. So 
I mean, without a doubt, you got to blame the offense for how this season turned out. Yeah, and, you know, it was kind of weird the beginning of the season, too. It seemed like we were trying to utilize players in roles that they weren't really good at, you know. Um, you know, the second half of the season was really good for guys like Bryce Ford Wheaton and Sean Ryan and Isaiah Esdale. Early on in the season, we were kind of trying to do things with them that they just weren't producing at, you know. It seemed like early in the season we wanted to just – we wanted to make Bryce Ford Wheaton a jump ball guy. And we were just kind of lobbing the ball up to, to him over and over and over again. It just wasn't working. And that's fine. You know, not every guy is going to be Randy Moss or Calvin Johnson. You know, that's a tough, tough role to do. Even if you are big and athletic, it's tough. And then, you know, once they started getting Ford Wheaton involved, you know, in the slants and intermediate routes, the screens with his physicality, he really started getting going. Um and it took us, you know, three or four games to figure that out. And, you know, that could have lost us, you know, a couple wins because Ford Wheaton is a stellar, stellar playmaker. You just have to use him the right way. Um, you know, same way with Winston Wright. I still don't think we got him the ball enough. I know at the beginning of the season where he was getting the ball, you know, one, two, three times a game. And I was saying he needs to get 10 touches a game, you know, end arounds, you know, the jet sweeps, anything like that. And they weren't really even trying it. I think they maybe maybe did it once a game there for maybe two or three games in a row, and then they completely abandoned it again. Um, you know, just try and figure out ways to get players involved in your offense in ways that they're impactful. You know, I always think about Dana Holgerson when he had Tavon Austin, and, you know, I don't like hearkening back to previous administrations, but Tavon was such a different talent that Dana would just go out there and drop a new set of plays for just for Tavon because no one could touch him. You know, you remember the Oklahoma game, I forget who was starting at quarterback that game, but they started Tavon at running back and he ran for what, nearly 300 yards? Um, you know, and I, I think that's something that going back to Graham Harrell, he's going to bring because he is a creative offensive mind. He's going to figure out how to get the most out of these players. But that was the most frustra frustrating thing about the season was just not using players properly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, what you said about Winston Wright, I actually have a big piece of that later on in this podcast when we talk about MVPs. So I'll save it a little bit for that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the way Dana used Tavon, I mean, we even had Geno Smith at quarterback that game, but like he just saw a weakness in Oklahoma's run defense. And so he put him at tailback. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm going to get that actually leads perfectly into my Winston Wright bit later. So I'll save it for that because it's coming up soon. Sounds good. Um, so for defense, you know, it was, it was pretty good. And, you know, the one thing that really struck me here was um, our rushing defense versus our passing defense. So I know early on in the season, we were one of the best rushing defenses in the country. We actually finished seventh in the Big 12 at rushing defense. And I think some of that had to do with the injuries we sustained at linebacker and safety, um, 138.5 yards per game. But passing defense, we were pretty darn good. Uh, 211 yards per game on average, which is third best in the Big 12, right up there with Oklahoma State, Baylor, Iowa State. Um, so just it goes to show you how good our defense was. And then red zone defense was incredible. First in the Big 12 at 70%. That number is super low. That's such a good number. Um, really surprised to see it. We, we finished that low. And then finally, third down. Uh, defense 35.1%, which was good for third best in the Big 12. So, you know, just, you know, really solid season all the way around. And with all the injuries that we had, especially in the secondary and the linebacker, linebacking core, you know, people stepping up, playing out of position, it was just really impressive.
to see how well we did and how much they kept us in the game. Yeah, yeah, and the defense played well all year. I mean, of course, they had a couple of really bad games, but uh, you're always going to have that when you when you play an entire season. But, uh, yeah, the, the phrase we keep using to describe our defense is bend but don't break, and those stats really reflect that. I mean, they allow a lot of rushing yards, but they don't let you, you know, beat them with a deep ball. And um, they might let you get in the red zone, but you're going to have to fight pretty hard to get any points out of it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that phrase is perfect for our defense. And um, my big fear is that we'll finally get the offense rolling next year and the defense will regress. So I just hope they keep it up. These past few years, they've been phenomenal. It always seems to go this way at West Virginia. We either have a great offense and bad defense or a great defense and bad offense. Um, I, I just hope they can keep it rolling. I think the coaches we have on that side of the ball are doing a great job, especially Jordan Leslie. We talked about him a lot last week. Um, I, I really trust him. And so he's still our defensive coach. So I think he'll hold it together. And then with uh, some of the players we have coming back, I have a lot of faith that um, our defense is just going to keep this rolling into next year. Oh, definitely. And, you know, the one thing that's encouraging too, um, we're not really talking, you know, recruits or new people who are coming in on this podcast but some of our top recruits you know if you look outside of nico the top like five or six guys uh maybe even more than that um were defensive players defensive backs primarily you know i think we had three or four guys who were really highly regarded defensive backs coming in this recruiting class so you know that this performance here as long as these guys aren't busts you know, should continue to happen as these players develop. And as long as they don't transfer, which, you know, it seems like we're pretty stable at the def defensive end and, you know, with the stable coaching staff there, um, you know, we should be able to keep recruiting the way we have been and keeping guys in place. Yeah, 100%. So the uh, next thing uh, I have on my list is the award winners. Um, so here talking about who we think our offensive MVP is, defensive MVP, and breakout MVP is. So um, I guess I'll start out with offense. For offense, um, keeping it simple, I had Letty Brown. Um, great season overall, almost 1,100 yards rushing, 13 rushing touchdowns, 217 receiving yards, and one touchdown. So, you know, combined uh, just over – 1,300 total yards and 14 touchdowns in uh, 12 games that he's played. So it's over 100 all-purpose yards a game and over a touchdown a game. Really, really good season for Letty and a great way to end his Mountaineer career. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to argue with Letty Brown being the offensive MVP. Um, he seems to be the clear-cut winner, you know, rushing over 1,000 yards again, scoring 14 touchdowns, being responsible for 84 of our 328 points. Um, and, and, you know, for me, his, the biggest factor, excluding the LIU game, every game that Letty rushed for over 100 yards, WVU won. Every wow. game he was held under 100 yards, WVU lost. So as Letty went, so did our offense. West Virginia couldn't win without Letty's production this year. So I, I agree with you, but we talked about this prior to the podcast, just so we're not parroting each other. I'm going to go a different route just to mix it up a little bit. I'm going to shout out two other guys for MVP. The first one, we just talked about him, Winston Wright, who led the Mountaineers in receptions with 63 catches. 
the guys in second had 42 catches, so he led that category by a landslide. He also led the team in receiving yards with 688 yards. He led that category by over 100 yards. And he tied Sam James for most receiving touchdowns with five. Let's not forget his impact in the return game as well, even with scoring a touchdown on a kickoff return against LIU and having some near touchdowns versus Maryland early in the year. As the season went on, teams started kicking away from him or kicking it in the back of the end zone. So, you know, he stopped making as big of an impact on special teams. But, uh, you know, he had a solid season under the circumstances. But uh, here's the most interesting thing to me. Winston Wright only had two rushes for two yards on the year. And his first carry was in the sixth game of the season. This is, yeah, that that shocked me too when I really did some digging. Um, You know, this is possibly your most dynamic splash player on your offense. And the Mountaineer coaching staff did not find ways to get him the ball creatively. I mean, credit to Coach Brown and Parker for making sure he got a lot of touches in the passing game. But you watch teams like the San Francisco 49ers or the Pittsburgh Steelers and dozens of other NFL and college teams find ways to put their wide receivers in motion and get them involved in the running game. We were even just talking about Tavon Austin. Uh, So, you know, even if you don't hand the ball off to the wide receiver, that still freezes linebackers and slot corners to help the running back have more space. So I know we mentioned this issue a lot earlier in in earlier podcasts, but only two rushes on the entire year seems like a missed opportunity by our coaching staff this year. Yeah, that I didn't even realize it. That's crazy, crazy low. I mean, he's he's such a dynamic weapon that it's hard to believe that we're not getting him the ball and uh, we weren't getting him the ball more dynamic ways you know and it even like screen passes i don't think i see saw him catch a screen pass all year maybe i'm wrong but you know it seemed like a lot of the routes that he was running were downfield kind of you know short crosses things like that um i mean we weren't a team that threw a lot of screen passes as is but you know that's kind of the way that the nfl and big time college coaches get their guys in the space a lot is those short little screen passes bubbles tunnels And Neil Brown kind of preferred doing that to the outside receivers as opposed to the slot guys. So, um, you know, it was really strange, especially when you know what Winston can do. Um, You know, when you have someone who's as dynamic as they are on a quick return and also can come in and be your leading receptions guy. You know, he's shown that he has really, really great hands. He even showed that last year. You know, I think he was the only guy who regularly when we would throw him the ball, um, whenever our other receivers were struggling with, with their hands, You know, he was a guy who I felt comfortable giving him the ball and he was going to come down with it. You know, looking at Bryce Ford Wheaton and Sam James and other guys, you know, last season, um, their their hands were so spotty that, you know, it was kind of a 50-50 toss up if whenever the ball was thrown their way, if they were going to come down with it. They improved a lot. But Winston Wright, you know, I think he got better from last year, especially as a route runner, um, as a guy who figured out ways to get open in space. Um And we really didn't take advantage of that. And that's really, really disappointing because he could have had a really special season, I think. Yeah, and and honestly, it's a shame that he transferred out right before the hiring of Graham. I mean, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Maybe he was out the door no matter what. But uh, it would have been interesting to see if that would have changed his mind because he could have really, 
really been a nice player in Graham Harold's offense. Oh, for sure. I mean, and that's something that I I, I read on uh, one of the twenty four seven boards was that um, the coaching staff. You know, you had Bryce Ford Wheaton and Sam James who were actually kind of on the fence to transfer, and the coaching staff says, "Hey, wait till Monday. We have some big news." And I I have to imagine that they probably told the same thing to guys like Sean Ryan um, and Winston Wright. And, you know, it's just kind of a toss up as if that's going to work because, you know, how many other times have maybe they said, you know, hey, guys, we're going to fix things. We're going to do this or that. And it hasn't happened. Um, So, you know, maybe he just jumped the gun and decided to get out because he was just he was just tired of it. And that's fair. I mean, whatever's best for the player sometimes is, you know, what's best for the team. Um, But, you know, I really appreciate, you know, for for now, it seems like Bryce Ford Wheaton and Sam James kind of trusting the process, trusting the climb, so to speak, and being patient with the team, you know, hearing Neil Brown out and saying, okay, you know, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I want to hear this news. And then you have this huge splash that, you know, we talked about for 15 minutes there at the beginning of Graham Harrell. I mean, so um, the players who stayed, you know, especially, you know, a guy I'm really excited about, Caden Prather. Um you know, he's him, Bryce Ford Wheaton, um, Sam James um, should really excel in this because they each bring something special to the table. But, you know, looking back, like you said, it's going to be disappointing to not see Winston Wright in this offense next year. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The The last guy I wanted to give a shout out to was Casey Leg. You could argue that the leg was our offensive MVP some of those games this year. So um, obviously it's hard to say a kicker's your offensive MVP, but I thought it was worth mentioning him. He made all of his extra points and kicked 82% on the year, making 19 out of 23 kicks. Excluding the LIU game, every win was a tightly contested game. And having a reliable kicker is just one less thing the coaching staff and the fan base, you know, don't have to worry about on game day. So big shout out to Casey Lake for having a solid season. I hope he has another one next year. Oh, same. I mean, it feels like the past two or three years, maybe even longer than that, um, it's been a while since we've had someone who we can regularly rely on, especially from like 40 to 45 yards out where leg, you know, did pretty solid this year. Um, you know, Josh Lambert's kind of the last one that came to mind. and He he fell off a cliff there towards the end of his career. Uh, after that, you know, we've had a whole bunch of spotty guys, guys that we couldn't trust outside of 39 yards. So it's great to have another guy in there and guy someone who can really, you know, kick and make field goals when we need them. I mean, obviously we want touchdowns, but whenever you're in that 25 to 30 yard line range, you know, it's good to get points on the board and not have to worry about getting it on fourth down. Yeah, 100%. And he only had one miss inside a 40 yard field goal, and I believe it was blocked. So, I mean... If you just get him in decent range, the dude was automatic this year. So you can't ask much more than that. Definitely. Um, I did have one runner up for my offense. Um, I wanted to, you know, give a shout out to Zach Frazier. I think that, you know, he really helped get that running game going in the second half of the year. Um, You know, early on, he did have his, you know, issues. There was a couple bad snaps that he had, but he really rebound, you know. And if you look at centers, you know, you kind of look at that similar to, to how kickers react, you know, where... Um, you know, a bad snap can derail someone because that's that's a big deal. That's a, a mental thing. And he didn't let it get to him. He fixed the problem and he became such a mauler in the middle. Um, that you know, there are plays where he was blocking, you know, one or two guys, you know, five yards down the field, just opening up a huge hole for Letty. And that's a big reason why he hit that thousand yard mark whenever he 
Letty had a, such a slow start to the season. Um, and, you know, having a good center is a key to having a better offensive line because that is kind of like your quarterback on the offensive line, calling all your slide protections, getting everyone on the same page, and then also winning at the most vulnerable point on your offensive line, and that's right up the middle. So um, it's great to have that position locked up by someone who's a true sophomore, uh, a kid from West Virginia, and someone who is just so talented. Um, you know, I've said it before, but I wouldn't be surprised if next year is his last year in Morgantown, if he has another great year he could leave early for the draft because I think he has that kind of talent. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Unfortunately, a couple WVU fans will only remember those couple bad plays he had against Oklahoma. But, I mean, you're not giving the kid credit because he he had a fantastic year. And you're right, only a sophomore, and he's, you know, he's easily the best guy on our line. But you're right, he could leave and go to the NFL. Like, he's that talented. So, um, you know, offensive linemen don't always get their due. So I'm glad you gave him a shout out. For sure. Yeah, you got to love the big uglies. Um, so on defense, um, kind of another easy one to get, but it's hard not to give it to this young man. Uh, Dante Stills um, coming back for next year too, but 36 tackles, 15 tackles for loss, seven sacks, one forced fumble, and who can forget one interception. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, once again, it's hard to argue with Dante Stills being the defensive MVP. Just solid season, and I'm thrilled that he's returning for the 2022 season. Um, but just to be different, I'm going to go and give a shout-out to another guy who's returning next year. Josh chandler Tomato had a great year. He can play Mike or Will Linebacker, which might seem easy, but there are definitely different requirements and assignments for both positions. So credit to him for filling in wherever they needed him. And he just consistently filled up the stat sheet with tackles. I, I swear his game just seemed to improve as the year went on. So big props to him. We mentioned it last week. Um, you know, his cover skills were a little worrisome at the beginning of the year. But as the season went on, he seemed to get better to the point that, you know, the cover issue wasn't even noticeable anymore. So, um, but the biggest factor for me was his leadership. When WVU was two and four and at four and six at different points of the year, Josh was very vocal, um, you know, in the media, but I'm sure he was also a leader in that locker room. He promised the team wasn't going to finish the year with a terrible record, and he was good on his word. You know, Chandler Semedo rallied the players and they finished strong with wins over Texas and Kansas to become bowl eligible. I think having him back next year is huge, not only because of his skill set, but having players like Stills and Chandler Semedo are going to keep that locker room motivated. They're going to hold the players accountable for their work ethic and they're going to lead by example. So big shout out to not only Dante Stills, but Josh Chandler Semedo as well. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think those are, Definitely the top two guys we had on the defense. I mean, you know, a lot of people kind of talk about Akeem Mesador before the season, and he didn't do anything wrong. He had a good, solid season, um, you know, and I think part of the reason that he fell off was, he, you know, you remember two years ago he was playing outside as more of a defensive end this year. He moved to nose, and that's a that's a tough job for anyone. So um, he's kind of someone I'm looking for, forward to next year, getting more snaps on the outside, and we get to – see two really impactful players and stills and Mesador once again um, attacking defenses and destroying pockets. So really excited for that. And, you know, I, I think our entire defensive line is coming back because Alston 
is only a junior, so he should be back. We have Jordan Jefferson back. I think we saw um, you know, five or six different guys this year get snaps on the defensive line, and they all look pretty good. So um, having all of them back um, with Josh Chandler, Semedo, Lance Dixon coming back healthy, um, you know, that that front seven is going to be really, really tough for us next year, and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, 100%. It's, you know, it's great that we don't have to worry about filling these spots because, you know, these guys are coming back for that extra year. So it's just one less thing the coaching staff has to worry about. For sure. Um, so next is my breakout player of the year. And this is one um, I was kind of torn on at first, but I went with the, the playmaker of the group, and that's Charles Woods. Um, he had two interceptions, four pass breakups, two fumble recoveries. And he only played 40 or more snaps in six games. Um, so, you know, you look at those numbers, they don't seem that impressive. But when you realize he did them, you know, in six games, it just kind of goes to show you how much an impact he made. I mean, you think about the first half of the season where he really didn't play much at all. And we weren't getting interceptions. We weren't getting fumble recoveries. We just seemed like we had to pray for a turnover. And he came in and I think it was his first game where he had two turnovers forced. Um, a pick and a fumble recovery, and he had a nose for the football. And it wasn't just someone who was an opportunist who just looked for opportunities to make plays. He was really good in coverage, too. So not only was he making plays, but he was locking down his guy, too, whenever he was playing in coverage. So um, he's someone I'm really looking forward to see how he builds off this next season, especially with um, all the players that we have leaving the secondary and Jackie Matthews, uh, Mahone, and Adai. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you once again. If I had to pick a breakout player this year, it would be Charles Woods. Um, for everything you just said, he had a big impact in the second half of the season and really changed the way I saw our defensive coverage. It it really seemed to improve once he cracked the lineup. So, um, But I'll, I'll go in a different direction just so we're not repeating each other. You could possibly say, uh, you know, Wyatt Milam, who had a rough start to the season but then slowly improved. But due to recency bias, I'll go with Tony Mathis. You know, I understand Tony only saw a lot of action in about three games this year. But uh, his performance versus Kansas and Minnesota really makes me feel good going into next season. Um, I understand he only had 56 rushing yards versus Minnesota. But for anybody who watched that game, Tony passed the eye test. You know, I, I feel he, he could have had a decent stat line versus Minnesota if the coaching staff would have just went more, uh, you know, run-heavy focused offense. But um, every time he touched the ball versus Kansas and Minnesota, he looked explosive. And I just really like the way he runs the ball. Obviously, he has to earn the starting role next year with Dixon and other talented players at running back. Um, but if Tony ends up being the starter, I feel pretty good about our running game for the 2022 season. If he trains hard and stays focused in the offseason, which he will because the coaching staff and his teammates have nothing but good things to say about him, there's a good <laughs> chance uh, he'll get a lot of touches next season. Oh, yeah, I agree with that 100%. And, you know, Mathis was someone who was actually kind of worried about at the beginning of the season. I thought, you know, maybe he was someone who might end up transferring um, just because at the beginning of the season, um, it seemed like he was supposed to be number two on the depth chart, and I think he might have got banged up or something, or um, not sure what happened. But um, Johnson was actually, or Williams was actually um, taking snaps from him as the number two guy for the first two or three games, and I was wondering what how, what impact that would have on him, him being a redshirt sophomore versus a, red, a true freshman. 
Um, but he battled back. He got that job back. And then, you know, the last two, three games of the season, he really showed some physical running styles. Now, the, my only concern with him is can he do that for, you know, 15, 20 carries a game for a 12-game season? That doesn't seem really sustainable. But the good thing is, is we do have a really good stable of running backs. So um, definitely he, he won me over, um, especially – you know, not seeing him for the first basically eight or nine games of the season and then him coming in and really just showing what he can do with the ball in his hands. Um, definitely changed my opinion of him hugely. Yeah, 100%. And if I remember correctly, I think he was hurt, um, you know, for the Maryland game and a couple other games at the beginning of the year. So maybe it, uh, it was lingering and took a little while. But whatever it was, you know, he seemed fine at the end of the year. And honestly, if guys like Dixon or anyone else in the running back group can step up, I would love to see our offense have, you know, a guy with like 13, 15 carries and another guy with like 8 to 10. I would love to see him just share the workload and just always have fresh legs out there because, you know, that's how you bust off big, long runs. So for sure. Yeah. And then I had one other guy uh, who I wanted to highlight. Um as kind of my runner up. And that was another cornerback and that's Daryl Porter jr. Um, he really surprised me. Um, you know, didn't make a ton of flashy plays, but a red shirt freshman starting and he looked like he belonged. I talked to him about him numerous times this season and, you know, the best trait for a cornerback in my opinion is not noticing them in the game. That means they're doing their job. And there are a lot of times where you just don't notice them. You don't, you don't see him making tackles. You don't see him in the play. And that's a good thing. And as a redshirt freshman, I, I don't know what the next two years look like because it's one of the toughest positions to play, especially in the Big 12 where you have some really darn good receivers. And, um, yeah, I mean, he already seems to have it down pat as a redshirt freshman. So um, really, really impressed me. Yeah, 100%. And the fact that he's that young and is already, you know, probably our best cornerback at least I thought he was before Woods came in and then it was kind of a toss-up but like you said I mean uh that's like the best compliment you can give to a corner is that you know some games you he completely disappeared which hey if he's disappearing that means whoever he's covering is as well so he's doing his job but yeah I mean he him and Woods together were just such different makers and I don't know if it was because the teams we played really started to focus on running the ball or if they are just that darn good, but they completely shut down other teams passing game. It seemed like, Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, our passing defense was so good, especially, you know, we, we talk about Tyke Smith and Drayshawn Miller losing them and how big that was. And, you know, you have these two younger guys. I think Woods was a junior cause he was a transfer, but you know, these two guys who, you know, really hadn't played much and they step in and, you know, you really don't miss a beat from those other two guys. And that's saying a lot. So I think our secondary is in really good hands. Cause a great cover corner is probably the hardest position to find in all of football, not just college. Um, you know, being Steeler fans, you know, we know that as uh, the St- the Steelers would cycle through cornerback after cornerback after cornerback for years and years until they found Joe Hayden. And uh, before that, Ike Taylor, there's a gap between that where we were starting some real guys who uh, was wondering how they made it to the league. But, <laughs> you know, love having good cover corners. Yeah, and, um, you know, it seemed like when our our pass defense was getting beat this year, it was over the middle where the safeties really should have been covering. And, you know, that brings up a concern for next year. Most of our safeties have either graduated or transferred. So 
Um, it'll be interesting to see who steps up and emerges. Maybe we'll have another Charles Woods, you know, a guy that you kind of hear rumors about that they could make an impact, but then just, you know, once they're in there, they're great because, you know, if we could have safeties backing up those two outside corners, I mean, we're going to be pretty devastating on defense. Oh, for sure. hundred percent agree. Um, anything else on breakout players or do you want to move to a uh, best win worst loss? Let's do it. I'm ready. Cool. So uh, best win. Um, the one I had, and I think you might have the same one as me, is uh, Iowa State. So we won 38-31, which seems close, but this is Iowa State. This is the team that absolutely destroyed us last year. It wasn't even pretty. Um, I don't think you could even say it was, it was appealing at all. Um, but we had 370 yards passing. Uh, we ran the ball for over 100 yards. We held them to 185 yards passing. Brock Purdy, the guy who was supposed to be a, you know, t- first 60 uh, draft pick, you know, I think a couple of years ago, people were talking him up as a, you know, day one or day two guy. And, you know, we shut him down. We won the game and our offense looked dynamic for probably the first time all year. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, I, I assume a lot of Mountaineer fans will say the Virginia Tech win where they won 27 to 21. Um, but for me personally, it's tough to say that a game West Virginia was up 27 to seven very late in the third quarter, uh, was their best win because, um, you know, I understand it's a rivalry game and it's nice to beat an old foe, but honestly, that game was a little bittersweet for me since we just barely hung on and barely won. So, um, yeah, my best win, I agree with you. It was Iowa state 38 to 31 because Iowa state seemed like a better team to me. So that was just a better win. And even though they finished seven and six and VT was six and seven, not a huge difference. I still think Iowa state was way, way better quality win. And I was more encouraged by the Mountaineers performance after that game than I was after the V tech game. So plus it was a key win at that point in the season. Um, You know, that, that win was absolutely huge and probably saved us from, not going to a bowl game, which I'm sure most Mountaineer fans <laughs> wouldn't mind at this point because we were so bad in it. But, you know, I always say I much rather go to a bowl and lose than to, you know, just be sitting at home once the season's over. Oh, for sure. And, you know, the difference between the Iowa State game and Virginia Tech game for me really was that we went out there and won the Iowa State game where it felt like Virginia Tech blew opportunity after opportunity to to win the game themselves. Um, especially when our offense was making so many mistakes. Um, so like you said, it was really bittersweet because, you know, being at that game and watching it, it was just kind of like pulling your hair out and just anxious the whole time. It didn't feel good. It didn't feel like a good win. It felt like we survived rather than prevailed. And that's, I, I don't know how else to describe the feeling because it's not a very good feeling to have um, because then you worry about the next week. And I think the week after that we had Oklahoma. So, you know, after seeing what our, team did in that fashion and then going up against the best team in the big 12 um it really makes you worry um where against iowa state when we pulled that off and we got the offense going after having such a hard go of things in the first half of the season you know it made it made me feel that we can have life in the second half i felt like we could go into kansas state and win i felt like we could beat texas i felt like we could you know obviously beat kansas um, I thought that, you know, maybe that was a turning point to where maybe we could keep 
it close against Oklahoma State. Like I said earlier, obviously only half of those things were right, but that win alone kind of gave me that hope. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. So worst loss, um, I had Texas Tech. Um, So, um, you know, if you look at it, it doesn't look that bad, um, 20 to 23. But the worst part was we went scoreless in the first half. They had a backup quarterback, Henry Columbia, who actually has beaten us before. Seems like, you know, he's our kryptonite. Um, And then I think it was, what, a game or two later, it might not even been that long, where Texas Tech fired their head coach. Um, after beating us, I think they were five and three when he got fired or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so just kind of all those things culminating together, just feels bad. Kind of makes you feel dirty as a team where, you know, you you don't know what direction you're going. You don't know what the solution is. You don't know how you're going to get bowl eligible. Um, it just felt like the world was crumbling underneath our feet after that loss. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you. You could make two arguments here. You know, Maryland 30 to 24. This loss was tough because WVU clearly was capable of winning that season opener. Some of the turnovers were boneheaded. Not all of them. You know, Maryland made some nice plays on some of them, but West Virginia should have never lost the turnover battle four to nothing in that game. So even with all that, they still only lost by six. So that was a tough pill to swallow. But I'm with you. I'd probably have to go with Texas Tech as the worst loss on the year. Um, down 17 nothing at halftime is a tough hole to dig out of, especially when West Virginia doesn't have the most explosive offense. They tied it late, um, but then the Red Riders just drove down the three game the lead with like 20 seconds left. So it was a tough loss because Tech wasn't, you know, they were above average team, like you said, five and three. And, you know, once again, the timing of the loss is what made it so bad. WVU was two and two at the time um, with two close losses to Maryland and Oklahoma the week before. So um, and WVU was at home. It just felt like a statement game. And the Mountaineers fell flat on their face as soon as the starters got fired. So it was just super disappointing. And honestly, to me, it felt like the worst loss of the year. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, you know, looking at the first half, you know, it was a, a, t- a tale of two halves where the second half, our offense was humming. I mean, it felt like that third quarter offense that we had. Deggy couldn't the ball wasn't hitting the ground. It, it looked like a completely different quarterback. But the offense and the defense in the first half were just kind of doing not much. I mean, the defense wasn't that bad. A lot of it was because our offense was just that bad. But, you know, the the, the way that you know, looking at it as a fan, like how can you have that hot and that cold of a team? Um, really, really concerning. And it, it seemed it wasn't an aberration. It happened several times during the season. Um, so uh, it definitely was a good barometer of what happened in the season, but it was a, a bad loss. I mean, you know, if we win that game, that is a seventh win. And, you know, maybe we get a little bit more momentum, especially after mounting that comeback. But it wasn't to be, and we lost to a team who, fired their coach a week or two later. Yeah. Yeah. And you put it perfectly. If someone, you know, was in a coma for a year and said, how did the Mountaineers do this year? I would just say, watch the Texas tech game. That was basically the entire season. Yeah. It's a great point. <laughs> so uh, the next thing I have on my list is uh, departing players and their replacements. So I have uh, three, seven guys here um, that are, 
leaving either because they graduated or because they are transferring and who the next man up is, um, at least in my mind. So starting off, um, two guys sharing one spot, the Z receiver position, Isaiah Esdale and Sean Ryan shared that spot outside all season long. They did a pretty good job of it. Um, and I think the next guy up, and we saw him a little bit there towards the end of the season, is Caden Prather. Um, and I'm really excited about him because he's a blue chip guy, great size, great speed, and he showed some real playmaking ability there towards the end of the season. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, everyone was calling for him to get more playing time in these last few games, but unfortunately with like COVID and you know, whatever else was keeping him from getting on the field a lot, got in the way. But, uh, yeah, he's the perfect guy to step in and, and, and take that role. Like you said, you know, Ryan and Esdale did pretty good. I actually like those two players. You know, they weren't like studs, but they were just two solid players to have on your team. But, uh, you know, Caitlin Prather has potential to be a stud and to be someone who's just putting up, you know, godly numbers. So I, I hope he gets the opportunity as long as he has his head on straight. I don't see why the coaching staff wouldn't want to see what they got in him, because every time he was on the field, it just seemed like he was making plays. 100 percent agree. I mean. You know, that freshman year, I was wondering where he was basically most of the season. Then he, he closed out pretty good. So really excited to see how he does next year. Um, next guy on my list is obviously a guy we've talked about a lot already today, our uh, inside slot receiver, Winston Wright. Um, couldn't really think of too many other guys to replace him with, but Reese Smith um, doesn't really move the needle much for me. He's solid, um, good hands, kind of seems like a decent route runner definitely nowhere near as explosive or a playmaker as Winston Wright is. So um, do you think it's going to be Reese or you have someone else in mind? I could see Reese getting that, um, uh, that playing time because uh, you know, that was Neil Brown's first recruit. And you know what, you know, Reese Smith isn't a bad player. I mean, he can mm-hmm. make some nice plays here and there, but you know what? I wouldn't be shocked if uh, I'm really drawing a blank right now. What's the dude's name. Who's coming out of that college from Texas that we talked about oh, a couple yeah. weeks ago, and I was really big on him. Yeah, I'm blanking on his name too, but I know who you're talking about. Um, yeah, he's a great kick returner, and he does kind of, you know, he's a little bit a, a taller version of Winston Wright. Um, I'll have to go back and look to see what his name was, but I know exactly who you're talking about, and that's a great guess. I, I completely forgot about him. Yeah, I mean, he's a quick guy. He's got the ability to put up stats, um, you know, if if he's good at that position. I mean, I would love to see him get a lot of snaps there. For sure, especially with speed. I mean, that's something that, you know, we really didn't have. I think Sam James might be the biggest deep threat that we had as far as it goes to straight line speed. Um, And his hands are kind of suspect. So if we can get another guy out there who can stretch the field and maybe has a touch better hands, it's a good thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Next one I have is running back Letty Brown. So I actually have this one split. Um, I think next year, I, I don't think we have anyone else on the roster, like I said before, who can handle the beating that Letty took in between the tackles with his running style. So I think that Tony Math is, is going to share the workload with Lynn J. Dixon, the transfer from Clemson. What do you think? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. And like I said, I, I would love the, you know, unless someone else emerges, I hope, I'm sure it will be just an open competition, but more than likely those two will be the ones who emerge as the top two guys. And I would like to see them, you know, getting like 15 handoffs or 13 handoffs to eight or 10. 
I would like to see him share the workload just because, um, you know, neither one got a ton of carries last year. So, you know, don't burn their bodies out in the first five games of the year. Really, really let their momentum carry them all the way to the end by, by sharing that workload. Yeah, and I think there are two different types of backs, too, where Mathis seems to really relish with contact, the physicality that he has. And Jick Dixon, you know, we it's been – you know, talked about a lot. He's, I think, third all-time in Clemson yards per carry. Um, he's dynamic. He's shifty. He's a smaller back. I think he's only like 5'10", 200 pounds. So, you know, you have a little thunder and lightning back there, backfield, and, you know, it'll be fun and hard for defenses to prepare for. Um, and Tony Mathis can catch the ball, too, and uh, Dixon can catch the ball. So it's not like when one's back there, the defense can key on one thing or the other. Um, I think it's a great complement to each other. For sure. And I think that does wear on a defense. I mean, you think of some of the famous ones like, um, you know, Bradshaw and Jacobs for the New York Giants back in the day. But even we had it with uh, Tavon Austin and uh, Olsen. Weren't mm-hmm. they on the same team? Little thunder yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I do think that wears on a defense because they always have to be aware of, you know, who's back there, what's coming. Is he going to run away from me or is he going to collide into me? So, um, anytime you have that as an offense, I think it's a huge advantage for you. For sure. Yeah. I'm looking for, I'm actually really excited about the running back court next year. I think it's going to be exciting. Um, next one quarterback, Jarrett Deggy transferring. Um, I, I went kind of chalk here and I went with Nico just because he's the one that everyone wants to see. Um, but I could definitely see Crowder winning the job there too. So I'm kind of torn on this one. I'm leaning Nico, but not really sold on it yet. Yeah, if I had to guess, I would say Nico, but I don't know. It's just so hard to get into Neil Brown's head sometimes because, you know, when you think it's the obvious decision, he doesn't always do it. So, and I'm not even saying Nico's the obvious one. I mean, it's not too often you see a freshman quarterback come in and, you know, start for four straight years. So um, maybe Crowder is the answer. I like the way Crowder's arm looked the very few times that we got to see him play. Um, it's crazy that Garrett Green's not even in the conversation, but I'm with that crowd. I don't really think he is. Um, but yeah, it's crazy that, you know, all the talk that we had about Garrett Green getting in the game and now that Daggy's gone, you know, he's the third guy that most people mention when it comes to starting next year. Yeah. And I'm really excited to see what Graham Harrell thinks of these guys too, because he didn't recruit any of them, but he's going to have to choose from one of them probably next year, unless he can get some. Surprise transfer in. I'm looking at a uh, Dart, the guy who just announced he's transferred from from SC, uh, former National Player of the Year. Uh, seems like a long shot, but you know, um, you know, Harrell has some really good eyes for quarterback talent. He's um, coached behind some really good ones. He's been a very good one. Um, he's coached some very good ones. So um, it's gonna be interesting to see who he ends up choosing because I think that's gonna go a long way not only for the player's confidence, confidence, but to kind of understand what he looks for in a quarterback too when we go back to, you know, talking about identity, um, which seems to kind of be the theme for the podcast today. <laughs> well, I think that's excellent too for our team because as far as I know, Graham Harrell has no ties to any of these guys. Mm-hmm. So he's just going to come in and pick the guy that, you know, meshes the best with his system, which is great because, you know... I'm not a Neil Brown hater, but I mean, the guy clearly picks favorites, it seems like. So, 
it's good that you have a guy coming in who just wants to instill his system and win. And he doesn't care what your name is, what ties you have. It's just who's going to execute my game plan the best. Yeah, for sure. And it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, who he ends up choosing. Cause I think it's really going to, you know, it's going to be like a huge stamp of approval for WV fans for, you know, kind of the tribes that are forming around certain players. You know, you have your green camp, your Crowder camp and your Nico camp. Um, getting Graham Harrell's stamp of approval is going to go a long way. 100%. And although, you know, you do kind of start, you know, liking these guys as if, you know, as if they're family because they're on your favorite football team, you know, it gets lost that sometimes just root for the team. I mean, at the end of the day, the most important thing is West Virginia. That's our team, you know? And so, yeah, these people who are already like, it better be Nico. It's like, why? You know? The coaches are the ones evaluating them. If they think he needs a year to develop, then give the kid a year. For sure. Yeah. I, that's a great point to make to everyone too, is that, you know, whoever just gives us the opportunity to win, put him on the field and we're going to, we're going to support him hundred percent. And as long as they don't fall apart at the seams. <laughs> um, so that's all the offensive guys that I had um, defensively. We have three guys, all safeties um, kind of disappointing. And you know, how thin we are there. Um, I'm going to start off with, from the bottom of my, my list, Alonzo Adai, free safety. Um, I have the um, new Ju- Juco kid coming in, Hershey McLaurin. I have him coming in as the starting free safety. Um, you know, I know we have a couple other safeties on the, the roster, but, you know, McLaurin with his size, um, his background as a former quarterback, um, his ability to get deflections and turnovers in the Juco level, I think is going to be perfect for that center field position. Plus you know, I'd rather have a more an older guy back there at free safety rather than a true freshman, which, you know, might be our only other options. Um, so, you know, having that experience back there as the guy who's supposed to play safety, um, last line of defense. So that's who I picked. Yeah, yeah. More than likely, he's the, uh, the most likely candidate to get that nod. But, uh, yeah, we were talking about it earlier. Safety's scary next year because we don't know what we got. Um, it really sucks that Jackie Matthews left just because he was such a good utility guy who could really fill in at any position. You know, it wasn't like he was a stud back there, you know, that we just absolutely couldn't lose, but you know, him transferring does hurt our defense a lot just because it seemed like everyone, you know, either graduated or transferred all at the same time. And so now we're so thin at safety. Um, you know, going into next year, we, we kind of thought safety and linebacker were going to be the biggest concerns. But now with uh, Chandler Semedo coming back, hopefully Dixon's the player we think he can be. Um, 100% the biggest concern on defense is safety. And as we saw at certain times this year, when you're weak at safety, you can really get picked apart sometimes. Oh, for sure. Um, so the next guy I have is our cat safety I don't know who comes up with these position names, but that's what we call them apparently. Uh, Sean Mahone, um, like we talked about before, I think he has the most games played as a Mountaineer. Super, super smart guy. Um, basically, um, what was it, a finalist for basically the Heisman for um, student athletes. Um, I have replacing him, um, probably moving out of position a little bit, but St. McLeod, um, he impressed me with his tackling ability and his coverage ability at that other safety spot during the season. And unfortunately, Sean Mahone 
always seems to be healthy. So we really didn't get to see see anything else in that spot. So um, I think Saint did a good enough job to move over to that position and um, fill in the shoes of someone who has been a great Mountaineer for the past four or five years. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think of uh, St. McLeod. That's a good point. Um, And he's definitely going to find a role somewhere on this team. So why not that position? But yeah, Sean Mahomes. I mean, we talked about him last week. Um, Once again, not like a stud who's like going to get you five, six picks in a year, but uh, just a solid player and a very, very intelligent kid that, yeah, had played 55 games for the Mountaineers the most ever. So uh, we'll miss him for sure. Um, And almost like how we talked about with um, Zach Frazier earlier, Sean Mahomes had a couple of just uh, uh, boneheaded plays where like it seemed like he was lost out there. But um, overall, he was a solid player. And uh, it's going to be hard to fill his spot for sure. Definitely. Yeah, I think just that experience and leadership, um, you know, it's good to have stills and uh, Samed, Chandler Samedo come back because like you said before uh, I think if we lost all three of those safeties plus those two we'd be really searching for the next guy up because I mean Messador is great but he doesn't really seem like a, a vocal type of leader to lead the, the the defense and you know when you're searching for a leader on defense I know it seems minor but it can really you know throw things off when it comes to like mojo if you want to call it that um, you know it's good to have a leader out there to get people in the right spot to, you know, get in someone's face and say, what are you doing? Come on, get your head in the game. Um, you need guys like that for sure. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. And like we said earlier, those two guys, they lead by example. They're not all talk. You know, they're, they're hard workers, and it shows on game day. Absolutely. So the last one, and I left this one as last because this is a complete shot in the dark. Um, so Jackie Matthews, spear safety, um, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, played so many different positions, but – he kind of settled in at that spear safety spot, um, who was, which was also manned by another fifth-year senior, Scotty Young. Um, so losing the two deep in that position hurts a lot. But um, I, I chose actually our highest-rated recruit from the 2022 class, Jacoby Spells. Um, more of a cornerback, but he's a guy who can play physical. Um, and I think he's someone who can kind of step in there and be in there at least in kind of nickel situations where he's covering a slot receiver. Now, if he's playing more of a linebacker role, I think we'll have to share that role with someone else starting out. But I think with his talent level um, and how highly recruited he was, you know, like I said, top recruit in our class, I think he's someone who can come in and give us quality minutes uh, as a true freshman. Yeah, I'm with you. I would love to see him crack the lineup somewhere. So, I mean, that would be a great spot for him because obviously Woods and Porter are going to have those, you know, outside corner positions on lockdown. So, and I believe Woods will be a senior next year, correct? So, yep, I believe so. Yeah, so it would be great just to get spells out there and get some playing time so that him and Porter can play together. Because as we keep talking about with this transfer portal, I highly doubt it would happen. But, I mean, if you have them just sit out for a year, there's no promises that he won't just bolt. So, I mean, uh, we have glaring holes that, you know, we need to fill with new players. So why not find the best position for him and just see what you got? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm excited for him too, because he seems to be, you know, he's a good cover guy, but he also is hard nosed. Um, You know, watching some of his highlights, he's not afraid to, you know, get in there and trash talk a little bit, push guys around, lay a big hit. So I think he's a guy who's perfect for that with that little bit of aggressiveness um, you know, we saw Jackie Matthews just have a nose for the ball. He didn't care if the guy was bigger, smaller, whatever. 
he went out there and you know, just played football. And I think that's a, a great way to get your toes wet in college football. So really excited to see spells play. And, um, you know, I think that's the best way to get him on the field early. Yeah. Yeah. Good call by you. Awesome. So I have, um, to close out the pod, uh, six questions, um, to get your thoughts on predictions way too early predictions for the 2022 season. So get your thinking cap on and uh, let me know what you think. So uh, first question is, so WVU finished with 38 sacks against last year and 20 sacks for um, next year. Do you think it's more likely that we have more sacks for or more sacks against? So we almost had double um, sacks against this year. Do you think it improves? So yes, I do. I, I, I could 100% see us getting more sacks than sacks given up next year because uh, we kind of touched on it already in this episode. We're going to have a new offensive system. That's all about getting the ball out early. And so we're not going to be, you know, sitting back there on very long, deep routes. Also, I'm hoping at least our offensive line has a year of experience under them. And so, you know, they have to get better. You would think <laughs> they can't be as bad as they were this year. And plus everyone who's going to be rushing the quarterback for the most part on the defensive side of the ball um, played this year and played significant minutes. So once again, you would think they're only going to improve. So I definitely see those stats flipping next year. Awesome. I love it. I hope so. I'm really hoping that, you know, this new offense is really going to help us get more time to pass the ball because, or at least get the ball out quicker. Cause that was a huge issue this year. Next one is do Tony Mathis and Lynn J Dixon combine for more rushing yards and touchdowns than Letty Brown had this year. Ooh, that's a really good question. You know what? I will say the yards. Absolutely. Cause I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe Letty barely cracked a thousand, right? Yeah. He was at 1095. Yeah, so I'll say yards 100%. Touchdowns, I believe he had 13? 13 rushing, yep. Yeah, so I could see that possibly being a push. Maybe they're right around that. Um, So I'll go under touchdowns, but I definitely think they have more rushing yards than Letty had. I like it, yeah. I think that's fair because, you know, that's the one thing that Letty did so well. I mean, you got inside the three, he just willed his way in. He was so good at that. Um, you know, and that's where, you know, he can make his money on Sundays too, is just being a goal line type back. Um, he's so strong, so physical. And, you know, as long as he can kind of keep a hold of the ball where he did have some fumble issues there, you know, for a stretch in the season, you know, he's a great power back and power, power backs are kind of disappearing. There aren't too many guys like that anymore. Um, and, you know, I think again, Mathis and Dixon, you know, are really good compliments to each other, but it is still, it's hard to score touchdowns and, you know, with Graham Harrell coming in probably a little bit more of a lean towards the pass. You know, if we get a quarterback in there and he likes to pass more in the red zone, that's going to eat away at those touchdown opportunities as well. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Next one. Um, do we have a 1000 yard receiver next year? Oh man, that's a really good question because the obvious answer would be, yeah, you know, we got a version of the air raid coming in, but I mean, the guy closest this year only had, you know, like 680 yards, Winston Wright. Um, oh man, I definitely, if you would have said 900, I would say absolutely, but a thousand's going to be close. 
I will say yes, just because we guys we have guys like um, Sam James or Bryce Ford Wheaton who have been there for a long time. And so as long as they pick up on the offense early, I don't think we're going to, you know, see a lot of boneheaded plays by those guys. Hopefully they're coming out their senior year ready to just, you know, light up the stat sheet. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, I kind of want to say that we do just because, you know, if uh, Harold is able to implement his system the way that he kind of wants to, you know, looking at his stats over his career, you know, they're somewhere around 325 yards passing. So that means we would, you know, throw for somewhere over 3,600 yards rushing. I would think that we have one guy crack a thousand, um, you know, maybe that's wishful thinking, but you know, I think we have the guys to do it. I just don't know which guy it will be. Yeah, I'm with you. I will say this. It'll be more than 680 yards, which is what it was this year. Yeah, yeah, I really hope so, because that number <laughs> was so low. I mean, 680, then the next guy was Ford Wheaton, I think, with um, 580 or 550 or something like that. Yep. Uh, next one is, so we forced 13 turnovers in 2021. Um, we turned the ball over 20 times. Do we... Turn do we force more than 15 turnovers in 2022? So I'm looking at a two turnover increase. Um you would think so, but I, I'll I'll only say no just because of the big question mark with secondary. I mean, you if you think about it, you know, a lot of the time when you're creating turnovers, it is in the middle of the field. And mm-hmm. uh you know, that could be a big weak spot for us next year. Like we were talking about earlier, Porter and Woods, you know, just seem to, you know, make those wide receivers disappear. So I don't know if they'll throw a lot to those two guys who are very capable of creating turnovers. Um, I, I bet they pick on our safeties a lot, and I'm not sure I see them getting a ton of picks. Now, obviously, we're going to get some forced fumbles here and there. Um, but, yeah, I, I'll go under for that. Yeah, and the reason that I was asking, too, is because, you know, if we look back two years ago, we were one of the, you know, top teams at forcing turnovers in the nation with, you know, Tyke Smith and Drayshawn Miller and that defense where we were tops in the nation. And kind of the only thing that really held our defense back this year was, you know, we weren't forcing a ton of turnovers. You know, 13 tor- turnovers forced is about one a game. You know, if we could get that up to, you know, even like one and a half a game on average, that could be a huge difference. And, you know, that takes off the heat of the offense and gets us the ball in better field position, which it seems like we really didn't have that much. Uh, you know, when we were forcing turnovers, like I think of the Minnesota game, we were getting the ball on our own side of the field when we were forcing those turnovers. So um, more of them, maybe we get better field position and uh, we can squeak out a couple more wins. Yeah. And the other thing is we play in the big 12, which all of a sudden has completely flipped and now they're a big defensive team with run heavy offense. So <laughs> maybe that's contributing as well. Cause it's a lot easier to get a pick than a fumble. True. That's a very good point. Yeah. I mean, Oklahoma state Baylor, um, you know, Iowa state, even, you know, it's, it's kind of strange how it's flipped. I mean, you still have Oklahoma who loves to throw the ball around, but, you know, everyone else, you know, they, they kind of found that the solution to those, you know, toss it around the park offenses is just to grind it out, beat them up and, you know, turn it into, you know, a fist fight. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so my next one, um, I think this one's a little bit tough to answer. So I kind of, I gave an over under on it. How many starters, how many returning starters 
lose their starting position in, in, in the off season. So before the season starts, I set the over under as one and a half. Oh man, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, I would have to have the rosters in front of me, but uh, thinking about it, a lot of the guys who would have been question marks have, have transferred or mm-hmm. graduated. So um, one and a half is the, so I'll go under just because maybe I'm forgetting someone off the top of my head, but all of the starters popping into my mind right now, I can't imagine they could lose their position in the off season unless they just completely melt down. Yeah. The only two guys I could think of, and that's why I thought this was interesting is, um, you know, one of the linebackers, I think Dixon and Samato have the two spots locked up for mm-hmm. that third spot. I'm not sure who it's going to be. You know, it could be that Kopja who's coming in. Um, Linnell Carr could come in and win that job back. It could be Jared Bartlett. Um, on the offensive line, you know, I think every job's pretty locked up for, except for maybe left tackle. And I don't know who would replace Brandon Yates. So um, those are the only two spots I could think of. Um, and everyone else, like you said, is pretty locked up, and which is kind of strange for me. Um, you know, we went six and six and, you know, such disappointing performances, yet it's hard to find places where you're replacing returning starters, you know, and not feel bad about it. Like, I don't feel bad about all these players coming back and keeping their jobs, even though we underperformed. It's it's a strange situation. That is a good point. I mean, the, the scapegoat was always Jared Daigie and he's not returning. So maybe that's <laughs> why everyone feels so much better about it. But, uh, and I mean, rightfully so there was, there was times that, you know, it, his performance definitely cost us the game like Maryland's coming to mind, but uh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. That is weird that, you know, we're not like calling for anyone's head except for the quarterback. Yes. That's just stereotypical with football though. It's true. Yeah. Just really interesting. Um, So the next one, um, I'm calling it the win bar. Uh, How many wins do you need to see next season? Oh, that's a really good question, too, because, uh, you know, you're coming in with a brand new quarterback. And so that always gives you a little bit of a pass. Um, How many do I need to see? Uh, I mean, a lot of people are predicting only four or five wins, but uh, I'm going to say I just need to see them get to six. Um, You know, obviously seven would be great. Because once again, we're talking about a young quarterback. But I mean, everything we have talked about, other than safety, our defense is pretty set. Mm-hmm. On offense, um, you know, obviously we're going to have to have some young receivers step <laughs> up in um, the offensive line improve. But I mean, I, I could definitely see them winning six or seven games. Obviously, a lot of things have to go our way for that to happen because we could just as easily win four or five. Yeah, but I'll put it at six because I don't ever want a losing season to just sound acceptable. Right. Yeah. And that, that's kind of where I'm at, too. Like, I think if we would lose or win five, I would be OK with it in the right context. I think if we won six, regardless, I'd probably be pretty happy, um, especially if we're starting, you know, if we don't get a transfer quarterback in before now in the beginning of the season, you know, with the guys that we have now, if it's Nico or Crowder, six is five. If we win five, like I said, I think I would be okay with it depending on who we lost to um, and how we lost, you know, if we're getting blown out every game and the offense is just a train wreck, um, you know, 
I, I might feel worse about that. But six is a good safe number. I think even, you know, even like this year where we won six, I wasn't happy. And I, you know, there were times where I was like, you know, we shouldn't have, you know, we should really put the heat on Neil Brown. I don't think I was ever at the point where it was like, we just need to fire him today. Even with all the transfer stuff, I think six wins is good. And, you know, ne- next year with a young quarterback, um, a new offensive coordinator, um, it's kind of a good transition year. Um, and it's something where we should be building up to something rather than expecting right out of the gate, something to, to show, especially even with Pitt coming out. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not looking at game one and saying, you know, we're going to beat Pitt or saying if we lose to Pitt, you know, the season's over. I would love to win it, but I'm not expecting a win there at all. Um, I just want to see improvement during the season. Yeah. I mean, I think it's winnable, but yeah, I'm not like going in thinking like this is a win. And if they don't win, then, you know, they messed up. I mean, it's, it's really a, a toss up because, um, Pitt definitely looks better on paper. They lost Kenny Pickett, but then they got that guy from USC. Um, but yeah, I mean, nah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to jump on, you know, the fire Neil Brown train if we lose a game or two to start the year. But I think you bring up a good point with it's how we lose, you know, so many games this year, the way we lost, it was what was disappointing. Like Maryland, the six, the four turnovers to none. And that's why we lost the Texas Tech game. We only lost by, you know, a last second field goal, but you were down 17 nothing at halftime. So, I mean, just because you're in close games doesn't always make it encouraging. It depends on how you're losing those close games. Yeah, it's, you know, kind of a psychological thing because, you know, the wins, sometimes wins feel worse, like the Virginia Tech game. Sometimes losses feel worse because you only played a half of football. So um, I want to see them play four quarters every game um, and build up to something. You know, if you play four quarters, you're playing hard and, you know, your team's just not there yet. That's fine. Just, you know, show progression. Um, Don't regress and don't be hot and cold. Um, That's my advice for the season, Neil Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. You know, hiring Graham Harrell is the best move he has made since he's been at West Virginia, honestly, because I feel like that gives him more leeway now. Like even if the offense has flashes next year, you know, fans can say, ah, we're, we're right there. We're just still figuring out this new offense, but once it gets rolling, then we're there. I mean, if he would just come back next year with Jared Parker and him calling plays and it sputtered, oh man. Oh yeah. Everyone would be up in arms, but you know, this hire, it really does help him in so many ways definitely yeah home run and you know you know looking at what um you know harold did at north texas and you know even usc he got better every year the first year was always the worst out of his three but he improved every year so um you know if you just apply that to you can apply that logic to whatever happens next year you know if he starts out slow he has to implement things he has to bring in his guys and i'm okay with that excuse now the excuse i wasn't okay with is if you know, Neil Brown just trotted it all back, like you said, and said, well, you know, we lost X, Y, and Z, and that's why we can't be good this year. Well, you know, you didn't make any changes. He made the change, and he made a big one. So I'm willing to give him a little bit more leeway um, because it's a good excuse. Yeah, I'm with you. Awesome. Well, that's all I got. Um, anything else from you? Nah, that's it. Um This was a long podcast, but, you know, I feel like we covered a lot, and it was fun to talk about. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a really interesting season and, you know, I think it gives us a good place to restart things next year. Um, it feels like just that one coaching change that we all made or that WVU made um, kind of helps out fans a lot. It helps out the team morale a lot um, and it helps out the coaches. Um, I think it takes a little bit, like you said, a little bit of a weight off of them um, and that's big. So hopefully we can all go in there, um, you know, without anger. Like I think a lot of us felt at the end of the season, a lot of resentment and um, you know, just love watching our Mountaineers play and hopefully reset things and um, start beginning the climb again. Well, hundred percent. I mean, the beginning of the year is like the best time to be a Mountaineer fan. Cause there's still so much hope and optimism for the year. You know, I go in every year with like, this is the year, man. But uh, no, I mean, I'm still realistic about what we can do. Like I said, you know, if we get six wins next year with a young quarterback, uh, new offensive coordinator, I can live with it. I won't be thrilled, but uh, yeah, I can live with that. So um, that's it. So time to punch out. As always, thanks for listening, guys. And for the Voice of Motown podcast, we will see you next time.